This is the Cyber Union Podcast, episode 85, Unionizing the South, the Lesson from VW. So this is Stephen reporting from Mexico City, and you did not have the wonderful voice of Walton ahead of me because uh, we did not get the chance to actually uh, come together on this one. Uh, what I do have, though, is a really good interview with Chris Brooks from Chattanooga for Workers. Uh, Chris and I met at the Labor Notes conference, which I shared uh, in last week's conversation. And really, this is uh, an, a great opportunity to extend the conversation we had in the previous podcast about what was going down in Chattanooga. Uh, so... I hope you guys enjoy it. It's going to be a pretty lengthy interview uh, and really good discussions. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll, Walton and I will be back for our next podcast soon. Thanks. You know, the, 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 uh, the pay's not great, but the work is hard. Are you up for it? And joining us is Chris Brooks from Chattanooga for Workers. Thank you for joining us, Chris. So I'm Chris Brooks, and I'm with Chattanooga for Workers, uh, which is based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, Chattanooga, Tennessee is in eastern Tennessee in the Appalachian region, and it has a long and proud history of radical community and labor organizing. Um, in the early 20th century, there were three regional headquarters for the Communist Party of the United States, San Francisco, New York, and Chattanooga. Um, it was the entryway into what um, the radical left saw as the ability to organize the South, specifically along anti-racist um, uh, organizing that combined militant shop floor tactics with community organizing and was pushing uh, an anti-lynching platform and the right of communities of colors to, to determine themselves. Um, and it's interesting because the, during around that same time is when we have um, like uh, places like the Highlander Folk School being created just outside of Chattanooga in the suburbs of Grundy County. And um, there were radical Methodist preachers um, social gospel ministers and organizers, labor organizers that were working um, to fight segregation, um, to organize uh, unions um, in, in, in some of the large factories here. Um, in fact, civil rights songs like We Shall Overcome actually got its start in a labor struggle just outside of Chattanooga in the suburb of Saudi Daisy. Um, when Zilphia Horton, the wife of Miles Horton, the founder of the Highlander Folk School, um, was leading a parade of over 100 uh, union members and family members and preachers and the high school band up a hill to the factory gate where a union, uh, an anti-union uh, uh, Pinkerton thug had a uh, fully automated uh, machine gun and started shooting into the crowd. And the workers there had been singing the gospel song, We Shall Overcome, and they started singing it directly after the shooting took place, and they kept singing it as they approached the factory and the Pinkertons left. Um, and so she used that story and that song to teach it to other people, specifically Pete Seeger, who then took it around the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's really fascinating, I think, that Chattanooga has this long and proud and amazing history of, um, you know, of, of radical organizing, militant organizing of people who are standing up against very oppressive conditions. Um, that sounds so great, Chris. I'm sorry. To, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I'm just uh, I'm just overwhelmed with it. it. Given that background, I would imagine that the, the entire area must be, what, 90, 95 percent union then? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so um, it was called the Dynamo of Dixie at one point in time. We had um, heavy industrialization after the Civil War um, in this area, and it had a 
huge militant radical uh, uh, union workforce in this town. And it was systematically um, uh, 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 deindustrialized over the years. Um, and it, it, so it, it's, it's weird, you know, it's come in waves, right? Like in the early 20th century, the South was used by the North as a way to move textile mills down here, right? To get mm-hmm. out of paying union wages. And so the communists came in and tried to organize the textile mills, um, you know, and so we're seeing these like cycles or waves of, you know, unionization building up and, and, and organization building up and then being deindustrialized and then reindustrialized again, as the South is continually used as a leverage point against the North and the West um, in order to, um, uh, you know, as, as, a, as an advantage to, to, because they can more easily exploit the labor here. And so, you know, a good example of this is the Boeing strike, right, that took place out in Seattle, where they were threatening to, to move the plant up to South Carolina, mm-hmm. right? And so we're seeing that consistently take place, or in the case now um, of Volkswagen, where, um, you know, one, because of the trade costs involved, but two, because they can move to the South, they can get these massive subsidies from our local government, um, and then they can um, pay the workers crap. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, fewer health benefits. And so we're seeing the South being used as an internal colony. Um, you know, uh, much like the global South, uh, in order to reduce wages and benefits for workers all across the United States. So one of the things that's really interesting is uh, many people might have a perception of what organizing in the South is by a wonderful movie called Norma Ray, uh, which I don't think actually does enough justice to understand what it is to like to organize in the South because it is a completely different, it's almost a completely different world, uh, given the history of it. I know the CIO, before when it split off from the AFL in the 1930s, had a tremendous amount of success in organizing in the South. Uh, when the, and the AFL didn't like that success, and from my, my understanding, uh, they the AFL come in to enforce segregation laws within union meetings in the South to keep. That's right. Yeah. So like they they the AFL. This is one of the reasons I have I fucking hate the AFL, <laughs> um, but uh, it it just frustrates me to see splitting solidarity on 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 lines of color and where we are as people. And it, it's a long history. And the CIO had success, but then. The AFL, with its anti-communism and everything else, came in and, and broke it up. But what what were the, besides the AFL's attempts? What are the bigger challenges that actually happen in in Chattanooga as well as as the South in general to why it's hard to actually organize a union? Well, because the whole array of political and economic institutions are set against you in a way that you know. I mean, like, again, like, I don't think, you know, I think it's a lot of the contrasting of the South with other parts of the United States is a little bit overblown. I think that what makes the United or what makes the South a little bit unique is that places like Chattanooga try to sell itself as the boulder of, um, you know, like the boulder Colorado of the South. Like it tries to create this public relations veneer that it's a progressive city, mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. A lot of the South is trying to sell itself like that, you know, around ecotourism and things like that, which really what they've done is retooled um, the South into like a large service-based industry with some manufacturing returning again, it's very minimal to be honest um, and, and, and highly exploitative wages. And I think that the, the big illusion is that people seem to think that the South is not as tightly controlled now as it was in the 1950s. And it is. And I think that's what people have to realize, you know, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, basic anti-racist principles, right. Is understanding the difference between um, being colorblind to being an anti-racist, right. Mm-hmm. Is, is a very huge challenge in the south because people don't want to acknowledge the new jim crow you know in tennessee for example um uh, the cca the uh, corrections corporations of america is actually headquartered out of nashville 
the first private prison. Um, it was a private jail, actually. It was opened in Chattanooga, mm-hmm. um, in Hamilton County. Um, so, you know, it's it, it's interesting. Like, the South is, in a lot of ways, um, the canary in the coal mine for a lot of the neoliberal reforms that take, you know, that then spread everywhere else. Um, one thing that was interesting at the Labor Notes conferences is, it, you know, in the teacher settings, they kept on talking about, like, Chicago's ground zero, you know, all these ground zeros around the United States. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, like, honestly, the South is ground zero for a lot of this stuff because they can get away with it easier here mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the ground is just laid for them. And so, you know, it, 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 it's still the case that, you know, if you're a radical in the South, you know, you go into the wrong places, you know, you can get beat up, you can get taken down, you know, the, the press is incredibly hostile. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that that's necessarily any different than a lot of the situations faced by other people in other parts of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think what makes it different and, and interesting is that um, the racial composition is different in the South. Mm-hmm. And that is really key and important to being able to push for progressive change. And it's also key in the strategies of the right to divide and conquer on the left. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we see that con- constantly. And it's not just on like, you know, on the right where they use it, but you also like, you know, like you're talking about with the bureaucrats on the so-called left um, in labor management um, who consistently use racial issues to divide workers in a way that benefits them in the short term. but doesn't you, benefit the labor movement on a whole in the long term. Can you give me an example of how, how they utilize that? Um, well. So not a, maybe not a specific example, but how they would try to utilize that from from that perspective. Well, you know, I think so, you know, what you're seeing in the Chicago Teachers Union is really interesting, right? Which is like this explicit anti-racist politics coming into their organizing as they're talking to things like the cradle to prison pipelines. They're talking about how schools actually feed into private prisons um, and how, you know, there is an array of industries that are working together, basically, in order to, you know, create create the class structure that we exist in. And in the South, that conversation is completely removed from the table. And in fact, when people of color try to have that conversation, what you'll typically see in white leadership is they're saying that they're being divisive or, you know, they're not focused on what's important. Um, you know, so it's it's interesting because, again, like with the with the liberal um, uh, leadership, it's it's never it, like um, like it is on the right, which is as explicit in its racism. But what it is, is it's this constant undermining of the concerns and um, the viewpoints and the analysis being offered by people of color and by white anti-racists. And so they just there's not a left tent that's large enough to fit in the legitimate left. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing them constantly pushed out as liberals move further and further to the right. Um, you know, in the South, for example, there's also a large number of philanthropic organizations. Chattanooga had a huge number of them because of the Coca-Cola bottling family that was here mm-hmm. and others. And so, you know, it's it's really interesting because again these um, philanthropic organizations which made their money off of exploiting workers you know cre- you know they, they, and, and then giving tax breaks to the rich to provide jobs to their family members to then create social programs that you know kind of um, alleviate some of the conditions created by the inequality in the first place mm-hmm. they also helped to create this veneer of of of, um, of you know the progressive south or like places like Chattanooga being progressive in nature. Um, but what they really serve to do in a large way is to continue um, these inequalities that exist that specifically, um, you know, uh, they may hurt everyone, but they don't hurt everyone equally. They specifically are to the detriment of people of color and women, um, especially women of color, single mothers in, in the South mm-hmm. have a very hard time. Um, and, you know, again, like, you know, just creates these large apparatus which people are dependent on. I, I know that's a really complex question, and it's a, this is kind of an abstract answer. Um, but I, I, it's just not a priority in the South to talk about, um, you know, 
what what it means to actually build um, black white unity, what it means to have like anti racist politics. There just isn't space um, created within the existing institutions to have those conversations. And so where we do see them happening are like an alternative labor, mm-hmm. um, you know, like in things like worker centers, but there's a few in Tennessee and they specifically are um, organizing with immigrants largely um, and other, uh, you know, uh, exploited workers that are excluded from, from dominant unions. Mm-hmm. Now, Tennessee is is it one of the also uh, something that's very commonly known in the South, uh, a right to work state, although now that is becoming commonly known in Michigan, unfortunately, um, yep. is Tennessee a right to work state as well? Yes, it is. So if can you kind of describe like what what kind of impact that has on organizing? Um, maybe describe what what for those that may not know what right to work is. Right. So, um, you know, it's the right to freeload. You know, it means that you, there's no such thing as fair share. Um, you know, it, if you start a union in any place, there's you under no condition. It's not legal for a condition of the contract to state that in order to be an employee for this workforce, you have to be you have to pay a percentage of um, the cost of service, the contract by the union. And, you know, what's pretty crazy about this is I've been a labor activist in the South, you know, for a long time. I feel like um, I'm pretty young, but, uh, you know, it wasn't until I left the South and started having conversations with labor activists anywhere that I even heard the term fair share. I'd never mm-hmm. heard it before. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, right to work is an ideology that is so deeply ingrained in the Southern culture at this point that, like, we don't even have conversations about the alternative, which is in- huh. incredible to me. Like, the local labor unions have literally no plan to defeat right to work. They have just completely settled with the fact that this is reality. Wow. Um, so much to the point that they don't even teach the workers what it means or what it is. There's like usually like if you bring up right to work, people um, in the South typically confuse it with at will employment. <laughs> right. And those are two very different things. Right. Right to work is, has to do with like the ability to collect dues in a union workplace um, and the requirement that everyone has to pay into service this contract, which everyone receives the benefits of. And at will employment states that the employer can fire you at any time for any reason, as long as it doesn't violate federal like civil rights legislation, you know, as long as yeah. it's not discriminating against you on the basis of age or gender or race. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's really interesting. I, it, a lot of people in the South, they just, they don't even realize how they're being screwed, um, to a large point, uh, part because the unions aren't bothering to educate them on anything. Wow. And, and I know the AFL-CIO, I think in the late nineties got rid of their education departments, which didn't help at all <laughs> to say, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> uh, but well, it seems like there, there's a very, very challenging, um, groundwork or lay, lay, laid out for what it's like to organize. Uh, so the UAW is not new to Tennessee. Uh, I know that they had success uh, in the past with GM, um, but to organize with the foreign company, they, they've never had success. I think the closest thing they can come to success is with, I think, um, I think it was Toyota, but that was like a agreement with GM and Toyota, and I don't even know where that plant was. I don't think it was in the South at all. I think it might be like Illinois for all I know. Uh, but the UAW's been in the South before, uh, and this drive with VW really sparked a lot because if Chattanooga was not on the global map, it became on the global map this year specifically. But how far back did this start, this drive start? Um, and when did Chattanooga for workers come into play? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, a few things is like the UAW is in 10 different cities in Tennessee already with 13 different locals on the ground representing workers in 21 different businesses around Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that they have a small presence that exists already um, that a lot of folks aren't aware of, but you know, 
from my perspective coming into this um, is that, you know, we were heavily critical. Uh, I, you know, so I work with a lot of different groups in the city. One is called Chattanooga Organized for Action, and it's a uh, social justice nonprofit um, that specifically works around um, issues of income inequality and housing um, and food access. And what we saw was that um, f over $577 million in city, county, and state taxes and public subsidies were provided to Volkswagen to come here. It's the largest public subsidy wow. ever given to an auto manufacturer in the history of the United States. And Tennessee um, has the largest proportion of its workers making minimum wage and also the highest sales tax in the country. <laughs> so what that means is, is that working people are paying a huge part of their income to subsidize this largely profitable multinational corporation, right? And so it, it, it's, it works out to something like $288,000 in public subsidies per job created. And so as soon as this deal was created, what we also saw was austerity budgets being um, brought down from the state, county, and city level. We saw massive cuts. Over half of the funding was cut for, our, um, for the, the regions only orphanage. We saw cuts to the Rape Crisis Center, to several mental health institutions, to indigent care at our local hospital. And so, you know, in order to offset the cost of, of providing these public subsidies, they had to slash funding for these social welfare organizations. And so, again, it fits into this, this model, right, of stealing from the poor to bribe the rich to provide jobs to working people. Mm -hmm. And so um, we really see Volkswagen, from the community perspective, as the neoliberal jewel in this crown built on 30 to 40 years of um, of, of inequality, of unequal development, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that was our approach into it, is that we see the worker struggle at the Volkswagen plant as an extension of our community struggle, right? Yeah. Um, and and it, it's, been, it's been very challenging because, unfortunately, when the United Auto Workers came in to organize with the workers, they do not see it like that. Hmm. Um, you know, their idea of, like, there's no idea of social justice unionism. There's no... Um, priority placed on building a bottom-up strategy that really emphasizes community support. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it, it, it's been very frustrating. Um, we, we have a lot of great relationships with the workers at the plant, and they're starting to, like, kind of be radicalized through this experience and just understand more and more about how, um, you know, the, the, the political institutions are arrayed against them, about how these supposed rights that they think they have on the job are actually being consistently and constantly undermined. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also recognizing that business model, this business model of unionism being provided by the UAW is not effectual because it doesn't allow um, for a, a bottom-up strategy to match their top-down. Right? And I think the top-down is really necessary. You know, if it hadn't been for the fact that they were having these higher-level conversations between the UAW and Germany, it never would have gotten as far as it did in the first place. Right, and I recognize that. But I also know that at the end of the day, to win in the South, it's not enough for the company to be neutral because society's not neutral. Mm. Right? Chattanooga is not neutral. And so, you know, they're being constantly barraged and attacked with, with huge anti union messaging that just got kind of um, gasoline dumped on it with, you know, the money from outside the anti union organizations, most specifically Grover Northwest. Uh, Americans for Tax Reform spent over six figures on billboards and radio ads and everything else. Um, we saw the National Right to Work Foundation coming down here and creating fake news stories, getting three or four anti-union workers to file lawsuits against the UAW and trying to make hay out of that. Oh. Um, so, you know, it, it's been really incredible. It, it, probably the most fascinating part of it is to see how the right is beginning to adopt tactics on the left in order mm -hmm. to undermine business model unions. Most specifically, Grover Norquist, um, the political operative that he hired, came down here and helped to create um, Southern Momentum, 
um, which was also, there's a local lawyer in town named Maury Nicely, who got paid a significant amount of money from our local chamber of commerce to quote unquote represent the workers. Um, and he created Southern Momentum, which he's calling a worker center. Oh my God. And he's saying that it should be able to be the representative agent on behalf of the workers and not the UAW. And so that's what you've seen. The messaging coming out of the plant from the anti-union crowd is not anti-union, it's anti-UAW. And they're saying the UAW doesn't like legitimately deal with the workers. Um, you know, that they, they're just another layer of management. Um, you know, they're not, they created two tiers. We don't want two tiers here. And so it's really fascinating because the right is using what I think are very legitimate criticisms of the United Auto Workers um, in order to advance an anti-union agenda. Mm -hmm. And then they're using things like like worker centers, centers right, yeah. in order to say, well, you don't need a collective bargaining agreement. You know, like you can just have a workers council um, and you can have representation and you can act like a union. So it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> that it's 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 mind boggling. It's really mind boggling. Um, I I want to kind of go back on one point that you were saying just to give some idea for people to understand. You're you're highlighting the UAW as business business unionism, and I just want you to elaborate on that a little bit, just so people understand exactly what that means. Yeah, so they don't organize. I mean, like the people they call organizers are servicing reps. I mean, they're using they they they're used to being called in, you know, to settle a grievance, you know, to, you know if necessary to engage in arbitration um there is no focus on providing the workers at the ground floor with the ability and the opportunity and the resources to define what their own issues are and to take collective action the workers don't run their own meetings um the workers um, don't you know aren't encouraged in any way to take any form of collective action on their own um you know, and I could give a lot of very specific examples of this, but I, I think it might be best if I don't, <laughs> just because everything that's happening. But, but needless to say, it's been incredibly frustrating to see the level of control that's being exerted by um, the UAW on the workers out of fear of not pissing off Volkswagen um, because they want the company to remain neutral. And I think that in the end that, you know, they lost only by 44 votes, which, again, is incredible. Like mm -hmm. in the South or on the first organizing drive, you know, like I in my lifetime, I've never seen a proactive drive. Like yeah. this. I've it's always fighting concessions or fighting cutbacks, you know, or fighting, you know, like like three years ago, they made collective bargaining with teachers illegal in the state of Tennessee. Um, you know, we're all, so we're always on the defensive and this was proactive. So I can't say enough about how happy I am about that and all the good that I think it's done. But at the same time, they didn't have an effective bottom-up strategy to match that top-down. And it's because they don't have a culture of thinking like organizers, right, which mm -hmm. allows for the greater freedom of the workers to act for themselves. Um, and again, I think it's, it's just kind of this idea of accrued dependency within business model unions where they think that their job is made secure by the more that their workers are dependent on them. And that comes through things like the creation of the contract, the service of the contract, being told when and how to go on strike, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I think that that is a large reason why we're seeing the, the mainline unions die in the United States is because that's a model that doesn't fit the needs of actual workers. Yeah. And that is, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons uh, Labor Notes exists, and that's one of the reasons we, you and I got to meet there is because the, I think that grew out of the frustration of the fact that there was no no other model being practiced in that, the, or there was, but it wasn't being practiced at the top, so to speak, and it wasn't being practiced by the majority of the labor unions, and they were fighting it. Um, yeah. And there have been some great struggles uh, with it. It's just it's really interesting to hear hear what's going on down there uh, and the relationships with the UAW. Uh, just just that story alone is just monumental to me because it's not something that's heard. 
And also the idea of like a business rep or a servicing rep to exist in a region of the country where union union density is so low seems insane to me that it's still a predominant part of what the UAW does. And I was a UAW member too, but not in the, any of the same senses because our union was in grad school and we organized ourselves first and then chose the UAW. So <laughs> um, with the intent of trying to alter the UAW's me- methodology and understanding of how to organize, it didn't succeed. Um, though I think the UAW's had better success with organizing graduate students than they have with their own auto workers, um, <laughs> ironically speaking. But I think I think seeing a, a vote actually come down and a, f- a vote difference of 44, although many people will say it's 88, but they're not doing the math correctly because if you switch it and take 44 out, then you are close to your 50% plus one that you need. Um, is really amazing to, to see that even happen in such a public campaign because most public campaigns don't usually go that way. They usually go lopsided one way or the other. Um, but yep. to see such a nitty-gritty tight one and in a region where it's not been had a historical successes is really amazing. Um, so, but I, I guess what I would like to hear about too here is – what was the organizing like? What what happened on the ground and where were their frustrations that happened between the communities and UAW and the communities and UAW and VW and, and what was going on? So, you know, first of all, because there wasn't this bottom of campaign is, you know, all of the media messaging is being done out of Detroit. And so, you know, in the local press, I'm seeing local voices slamming unions and slamming the right of these workers at Volkswagen to organize. And it's just consistent and constant. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one thing that Grover Norquest did that was smart is um, they did as much as they could to lift up local voices. Um, and I think that's a very effective and very smart strategy, you know, is is to recognize that the people who live there are the people who live there. Right? <laughs> and that their voices carry a lot more weight than, a, you know, some union bureaucrat from Detroit. Um, but there was no emphasis on, like, really trying to promote or uplift local voices or work with the community, um, specifically the pro-labor side of it, to try to, um, you know, d- create or foster uh, different narratives um, about like Detroit or about the role of unions or about, you know, the rights of workers. And so um, we early on uh, seeing this a group of friends of mine, you know, labor activists and organizers in the community. Again, we have been watching this for a long time. They're very critical of how the Volkswagen plant was coming in here, but we were seeing this union organizing drive taking place and we were very frustrated. So we formed this organization just kind of ad hoc, Chattanooga for workers in order to um, lift up some, some alternative voices. Um, in our community, you know, alternative to the dominant anti-union uh, conversation that they were forcing. Mm-hmm. And so um, in our conversations, you know, we, we reached out to the UAW wanting to do things with them. Um, we organized a prayer vigil. Um, you know, uh, one of the editors of the Wall Street Journal came down to Chattanooga at an Alex-funded event to talk about, he basically gave a speech about how uh, unions are cancer. And so we had a prayer vigil outside of it. It was really kind of like an exorcism (laughs) for Alec um, and the Wall Street Journal. But, you know, know, the UAW did nothing to really try to lift that up or to participate in it, which Mm -hmm. was frustrating. Um, You know, uh, Mike Elk was um, a national reporter for In These Times who uh, came to Chattanooga and was doing a lot of really great research on all the uh, anti-union forces that were coming down here and where their money was coming from. Mm-hmm. And um, he was the only one at that point in time that was even looking at that. It was on, you know, We were looking at it. We were trying to promote it. But the local press here, what, what you see constantly in the South is that we're, we require national press to come down to tell the truth about what's happening here because <laughs> the local press is so close to the people in power that they won't say anything bad about them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so you know, that, that, that's a deeply frustrating aspect um, of, of kind of you know, the organizing. You have to do something very sensational in order to get the attention necessary to be able to make your point in a big public way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people like Mike Elk and Steve Greenhouse were coming down here and reporting on this, and so the local press kind of has to follow. Um, in any case, we had a big uh, community forum with Mike Elk to talk about all these right-wing attacks and to, and to allow space for some of the other labor organizations to talk about the roles of union, uh, unions in Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the UAW, you know, was a no-show on that. <laughs> um, and so what we ended up doing was saying, well, you know, let's just go straight to the source. Like through these events, we've been reaching out to Volkswagen workers and building relationships with them and having conversations with them. And so we meet with them regularly now. We, we continue to have conversations with them about what the reality is like on the shop floor, you know, like what the assembly lines were like, what the paint shop's like, you know, what their frustrations are in the organizing drive, what they might think is effective, but also hooking them up with other UAW members from around the United States and then you know, when we came to chat, uh, again, like just to highlight like the difference between Labor Notes and other organizations is that Labor Notes was really keen on bringing the actual voices of actual workers to their conference, right? Mm -hmm. While everyone else has a million opinions from around the world about what happened in Chattanooga and what went wrong with it, they said, well, you know, the most important voice is the voice of the people who are directly impacted by it, <laughs> you know, who are leading them. Like, like they should be central to that conversation. Um, and so, you know, they brought two of the workers from the local plant here up to up to Chicago to have that conversation. Um, and, you know, I again, like, I just think that the workers here are very frustrated. I think, um, you know, unfortunately, they um, have been put on hold. Like, they're just kind of the, in a, in a large way, um, you know, the, 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 the pieces in between this larger game being played between Volkswagen, the UAW, and then the Republican establishment in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. um, in the last few weeks, uh, leaked documents from News Channel 5 out of Nashville have revealed that Governor Haslam, was um, his administration was coordinating with um, the chief of staff for Senator Corker, as well as multiple national anti-union consulting firms um, it, to attack the workers here, and that he specifically was leveraging another $300 million in subsidies to the um, Volkswagen plant for their extension of an SUV line that would bring another 2,000 jobs here mm -hmm. um, on condition of their um, of their working with him to defeat the UAW. Really? So we have, yeah, so we have direct confirmation that he was literally using a $300 million subsidy as leverage against the workers. Um, and so, you know... I, it's, it becomes pretty clear at that point in time, I think, to a lot of people that, um, you know, the rot of <laughs> and in the center of, like, our, 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 our political process is really deep. You know, the, the business mm -hmm. establishment is, is, um, is, is, is you. It, it, one of the most fascinating parts of all this, right, is that I don't think the Germans had any idea what they were getting into. Mm -hmm. I really don't. I think that um, they had no idea of how deep the anti-worker animosity was in the South. Yeah, And so they were just completely taken aback by all of this. They had no idea that our politicians would do this. And, you know, what's interesting, too, is I don't think the Republicans or the corporate class really, um, I think they view Volkswagen as a class traitor. I really do. I think that they think, like, you know, I mean, because why are they doing this? Like, yeah. why are they attacking this? Other than the fact that they don't want, like, you know, workers to be organized that way. They can be any sort of, like, you know, uh, you know, political force on the other side of what's really a one-sided tug of war at this moment. Mm -hmm. um, but they also, you know, just they don't want people to think that if we give you subsidies that you have any voice in what happens in your workplace with your workers. Like, yeah. you know, there's clear practices set, which means you have to beat them up, you have to keep them down. And if you don't join us in that, we're going to we're going to hold these things over your head. 
it's it's yeah. it's mind-boggling again I, I i keep using that phrase uh just because uh the lack of understanding like w- when you're describing all these subsidies and everything else all, all i think of is you know these arguments that these same politicians make for free markets and i put air quotes there just for the people that didn't see me doing air quotes is such bullshit because of how much how much there is involved in in tax subsidies and everything else and how these these players clearly as much as they say they hate regulation are completely fine with regulating their workers and making sure that the workers are completely under under the the boss's control and making sure that the laws defend the boss's control so it's like so much hypocrisy in the situation but also on both sides like hearing as you elaborated on on Nover, grover norquist's uh plans they did what the labor union should have been doing in the first place and it's just it's just crazy to see the things fall fall apart like that it's just yeah you, yeah you're totally right you know what's so funny about it too was um you know uh grover norquist operative when he came down here the first thing he started doing was to build a coalition um with community groups right and the uaw's never done this um we have tried to build coalitions in support of workers through um events that we've been holding and things like that um but he the one of the first things they came down here they they went he went to the, the chattanooga tea party Mm-hmm. And the Chattanooga Tea Party worked with Grover Norquist and some other um, anti-union, like, you know, economics professors at right-wing Christian colleges and things like that to form the Citizens for Free Markets, <laughs> where they gave this um, uh, this presentation, um, you know, about Detroit and about how unions are destroying the economy. And it was so ironic because... You know, they didn't have the Citizens for Free Markets three years ago when the largest public subsidy ever given to an auto manufacturer in the history of the United States was handed out, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there was no discussion of free markets then. And I think it's, you know, again, like, with realizes that markets function to the benefit of the rich. And as long as they continue to function that way, they're fine with it. But as soon as we start uh, organizing and building power for working people, well, then now all of a sudden free markets, you know, are what we need. We need to start talking about that again. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, you're right, you know, so it's, it's been really interesting to see the way that they've been framing this debate, um, you know, and, and, and it's also interesting to see how Volkswagen's been responding because, you know, the works councils themselves were actually a liberal reform in order to alleviate the pressure being created through workers' councils, right? Mm-hmm. Workers' councils in the early 20th century and late 19th century, you know, well, were, were part of the revolutionary union strategy in order to take over the means of production, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they, they would come up with, like, literal plans to just take over the factory. And so these companies came up with the strategy of, like, well, let's have a works council and give the workers an opportunity to have more say in the workplace, but we get to control, you know, we get, we're still the owners, right? We mm-hmm. still get to keep the profits. And so, um, you know, after World War II, uh, the, the planners, the United States planners that came over to Germany um, in, in talking with the German workforce, one thing that they wanted to reinstitute was these works councils. It's actually in German law that mm-hmm. if you have a company of like over 35 workers, they have to have these councils. And so it's, it, it's, it's just really fascinating to think that, you know, one, that Germany's reintroducing democracy on some level, like some basic economic democracy, like to, to the United States after World War II from these things that we created there, but also you know, to realize that, like, one, the real material gains made by revolutionary unions in the late 19th, early 20th century um, still uh, matter to mm-hmm. us now. Yeah. Um, and, and that that's the conversation that we should be having is, is to recognize that, the, that there are legacies that are living on that are providing opportunities for us now, even in these dark, hard times, <laughs> organizing <laughs> in the South. It, it's, yeah. And well, the, I guess here's the interesting part. So the German companies... German auto company specifically producing in the United States is also not new because BMW, I think it's BMW or Mercedes. One of the two is in Alabama. Um, 
Yeah, and but so I, I'm going to have you elaborate a little bit more on those works councils because what what is what's so unique about VW that the works council actually had strength in this situation, whereas the works council in BM or I'm sorry, was it Mercedes you said? Um, yeah, yeah. Why they weren't having aren't having the same success there? So you know what's interesting about the labor council, the global labor council um, for Volkswagen is that the 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 large number of the seats on it, the head of it, are in the most radical um, kind of areas of Germany with um, Greens and revolutionary political parties um, uh, appointing their members to it. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it, it's, it's, a, it's a strange uh, cycle of events where some of the most left-wing, you know, politicians and business leaders, and, you know, if you can call them the union leaders, um, in, in, in Germany are, are having a, an impact on the Volkswagen Global, um, uh, Global Works Council, um, mm-hmm. which has to say on the, ne- on the international level in terms of like where production goes, um, you know, what plants they open, where, when, how, what, what, what product they send there, um, you know, and so there's been a lot of pressure from the international community in, in the Volkswagen family to put pressure on Chattanooga to not allow for this um, plan to expand or to do anything like that if they're not going to have a works council, if they're not going to have a union. Mm-hmm. Mercedes, what's really fascinating is that um, they claim to have the same uh, beliefs and to have something kind of like a quasi-works council in place, but that is not factually true. They've been incredibly anti-union. Um, you know, the UAW has never been able to successfully organize a union there. And um, the UAW, in its um, filings to the National Labor Relations Board, so the UAW is now trying to contest the election and say that there was um, too much undue influence exerted on the workers, specifically mm-hmm. because in the week prior to the vote, Senator Bob Corker came out and said that he had been in discussions with high levels of um, Volkswagen managers and that they promised him that if the uh, workers vote down the union, they will make an announcement in two weeks for the expansion of the Volkswagen plant for this SUV, which would bring in another 2,000 jobs. Hmm. Did that happen? And so, <laughs> so, so Senator Bob Corker made a promise, if you vote no, you get more jobs, and the plant will expand. Mm-hmm. Well, the workers voted no, right? And then on top of all the other pressure coming in, and then there's not been any discussion. In fact... The Global um, Labor Council leader, the president of it, on Volkswagen, has said, we're committed to the United States, but not necessarily to the South, mm-hmm. in reaction to Bob Corker. And so they're pretty angry about this entire situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have reason to believe, um, because again, so like the, the, the UAW has filed a petition with the NLRB to, um, re- to, to, to allow for a new election mm-hmm. on the basis of, of all this crazy political pressure um, being placed on the workers by these politicians, specifically as it relates to Bob Corker's promise and then these new leaked documents showing $300 million in subsidies by Haslam being used and leverage against Volkswagen. And they also state within that there was a conversation between um, a, a National Right to Work Foundation lawyer mm-hmm. um, and uh, on his phone in, in, in the Chattanooga airport overheard by a UAW staff member in which he was talking um, to folks about how Mercedes money was being used to fight this. <laughs> and so there's, there's a legitimate, like, real question. There's a line of inquiry opened up now by the press and they're asking, did Mercedes give money to go over Northwest to fight this unionization drive because they were afraid that if it happened in Chattanooga, it would happen to them in Alabama? 
Wow. And so that's that that's that that's very possible. Mm-hmm. And so again, like it's it's what's what's fascinating about all this is that you know this is like this unique. You know, for us, it, it, it's an extension of our community struggle, but it's also an extension of the global struggle, right? Where German workers are fighting for American workers to make sure that they have the right to a union and the right to a works council because they believe those are central components to worker empowerment in the Volkswagen model. Um, but you also have organizations like Mercedes that are fighting get their own German, other German companies, right? That they're in competition with and they don't want to, to have their own plants unionized in the same, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> southern states, the same region, right, whether they can exploit these workers. Um, so it's just, it's, it's complex. Very, very. Uh, wow. So, so I guess we're, as you were saying earlier, in a holding stage for the workers, at least. Uh, what, what is going on now um, after the election and now obviously waiting for the NLRB decision? Is there still groundwork being done by both Chattanooga for Workers as well as the UAW? There is for Chattanooga for workers. Um, I don't. I, I don't think the UAW has been doing any. I mean, because they don't organize, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not talking to the workers about like you know. They, there was a conversation the day after they lost the vote about moving forward with minority unionism, and then it just died on the vine. Um, and so you know, the, the, I know that the workers are very frustrated because of lack of communication between the UAW and them. Um, but we, on our side, there is. I mean, so you know, part of um, one of the, the, the negative consequences of this neutrality agreement between the United Auto Workers and Volkswagen was that the workers were told that they couldn't say anything that was detrimental to Volkswagen in the <laughs> organizing drive, uh, which, you know, it's crazy because, and so they tried to focus all on this works council, works council, works council, that's all we want is this works council, right, because it's part of this model, we love Volkswagen, yada, yada. And, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of major health and safety issues in, in the factory, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it they hired all American management when they came here, and most of that American management was from Japanese companies. And so they imported the Toyota model um, into uh, these workplaces. You know, so it's basically lean production. So mm-hmm. they have skeleton crews working the assembly line um, at high rapid uh, paces to, in order to meet production goals. Um, and at the same time, they're tying things like worker injuries and um, self-reported um, soreness and tiredness and things like that um, to merit pay. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're creating an atmosphere and an environment in which supervisors and managers are putting a lot of pressure on workers to underreport injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, a, you know, led to this very machismo kind of, um, you know, uh, patriarchal work environment where people, you know, you're, you know, you can succeed if you just work hard enough and bootstrap it, which is also, you know, works really well for the anti-union side. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it instills more competition among the workers and a lot of injuries have taken place. Um, and so to counteract that, you know, we've just been trying to do things to create some one, some media around this because there's not been one single local story about working conditions in the plant <laughs> due to this neutrality agreement, which no longer exists. And we will post them after the vote. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're, uh, tonight, actually, we're having a fundraiser uh, for two local workers um, who were both deeply involved in the organizing drive, were both um, seriously injured on the job and then summarily fired by Volkswagen. Hmm. And so um, we're hoping that this fundraiser, one, will help them through a hard time. Two, it will also help to um, start alerting the public to the fact that things are not just all roses over at the Volkswagen factory. A big um, part of, you know, one of the difficulties that people have with um, organizing down here is that they're making $15 a job, an hour, right, which is um, a lot less than the $28 an hour that, you know, most UAW employees make on the line that aren't, you know, two-tier. And um, $15 an hour is really good. You know, when you have the highest percentage of any workforce with minimum wage workers in the, in the country, 
you know, most of these folks would be flipping burgers and they'd be making nine, twelve dollars an hour. Now they're starting at fifteen, mm-hmm. right? So like they're like, this is the best job I could legitimately get, right? And yeah. so you know, it, it's not going to necessarily break down on wage issues, but on things like, but I can't do this job for ten years because my body will break down. Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty important, you know. Like for them to be able to see this as a long term career, they have to be able to survive it. And I don't, you know, in the conversations we've been having with workers, they say everyone who works at assembly line is hurt. Um, and they're all under pressure to underreport their injuries. Yeah. You know, we hear about workers, their hands go numb every few hours from the machinery that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're developing uh, tendon and joint issues. Um, and, and not only that, one of the one of the central concerns that they have, which which is kind of crazy, because again, not a single local news report has been published about this. But everyone who works on the assembly line floor has alternating shifts of of, of days to nights weekly. Mm-hmm. So one week you're on nights, the next week you're on days. And next week you're on nights, the next week you're on days. And it rotates like that week after week after week. Wow. And you just can't get into a natural life rhythm. It's yeah. impossible. And so people are worn out. They're tired. They're beat down. They can never catch up. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to work and working these very grueling jobs um, yeah. that are hard on their body. And so they can't ever get to a place of full recovery. I, it's it's a, there's ironies in, in two different forms. One one is it's the a, the UAW forgetting its own history because it sounds the conditions that you're describing sound exactly like the conditions they were organizing back in the 1930s when they were part of the CIO, and they seem to have forgotten that. The other irony is the management coming from Japanese workforces, which was also in the same time period had their labor laws rewritten after post World War II by the U.S. as well. Uh, they just went a different route on it than they did in Germany, and it's just really two unique in- situations where there's completely different uh, ways it laid out. Because the it, it, they the UAW has been trying to organize Nissan, Toyota, and Honda for for decades, and they've had no success. And this is the first real attempt that they've tried to do since I think the 1970s in Pennsylvania when VW was there, uh, where they're actually going after a foreign workforce and having more success with German companies than they are with Japanese companies. It's just really ironic, um, given the way the history is laid out um, very similarly post-World War II. Uh, but it's it's the UAW seems that it needs its own history lesson. <laughs> and going back to, I mean, I've been saying that for, for a long time myself, most of the labor movement in the U S needs a history lesson to go back to where its roots are, uh, and knowing what, what they're actually fighting for. Um, but this, this sounds really, um, really challenging there, but with so much more success in terms of what could, it, what it could have been. Um, and, it's sad to see that minority unionism hasn't picked up uh, by – I mean, it was interesting that the UAW even mentioned the word uh, because I would, was shocked to hear that they had actually discussed the idea. Um, but on top of that, it seems like that's something that could still be done, whether it's with the UAW's blessing or not, uh, because it's something that, that doesn't need a union to actually be, be behind it um, from, from yes. my own understanding of it. One side of, of what we've been working on is talking to workers about what concerted action is, mm-hmm. right? And saying, like, you don't have to have a union representative, so-called, in order to do something, right? You know, if you have health and safety conditions that become an emergency on the line, shut it down. You yeah. know, like, talk to your boss about it. Um, you know, they, it, the big issue they have is temp workers. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do something about temp workers. Like, there are people who are promised to receive full-time employment with Volkswagen after six months of temporary work, and they've been there for two years. Um, these are people working on the lines with them, the same job, doing the same hours, but they're making less pay with no benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so what we're seeing is that the workers are, are wanting on their own to take action and to begin to say, like, you know what, you're right, we can't wait for the UAW to get in line with us. We have to leave. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I think that's just right. 
I think, you know, it is really fascinating to see how, like, this German model is being managed by Jap like, American management from Japanese plants, mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah. and, and how that's feeding into this culture of machismo. Um, it really reminds me of, like, that famous Sinclair Lewis quote, you know, like, that, you know, uh, working people in America never, like, bought into socialism. So they all were just thought of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Um, <laughs> you know, and it, it, uh, like, part of the, the mentality that we see between a lot of the strong anti-union workers is that they see themselves as temporarily unappreciated bosses, yeah. you know. And so they throw their, um, you know, their backs into, into showing what, how good they would be at managing the workers by already managing them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, again, like the only way to overcome that is to say, well, you know, at the end of the day, it might be your back that's thrown out, you know, like mm -hmm. it might be uh, your hands that go numb. Um, and when that happens, you know, these group of workers are going to have your back. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think that there has to be this really strong, intentional focus on building a, a culture of solidarity in the workplace. But I also think it really has to expand out into the community in order for it to be effective for them to win their drives, but also to win their struggles, um, you know. Again, like because that that five hundred seventy seven million dollars that they're not paying, mm -hmm. um, when they don't pay, we do, right? And we don't all pay equally. Poor and working people pay far more of their incomes to, for those jobs than anybody else does because of our regressive tax system. And not only that, but they're paying disproportionately among you know the poor, among um, the, the disabled, and among people of color because of the cuts to these social welfare organizations that took place in order to to, to make up for the funding um, from city, county, and state governments for that for that company. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think it's really important for all of us to try to realize that our struggles are deeply connected to one another, and in those intersections, we can build up a strong movement in the South to start changing some of these dynamics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me of a cartoon that I remember seeing from a, an old Marxist professor of mine on his door, which was a, a picture of the sea rising and it only rising for the rich and the boats for the poor were sinking. And the person sitting there is like, I thought all boats were for, supposed to rise. And it just shows, <laughs> shows that that's not true, that, you know, the, the boats for the rich somehow seem to get the float higher than the boats for the poor. Um, but th this has really been a great uh, discussion. Thank you very much, Chris, for, for taking the time to actually tell us about this, because I think what you're sharing here with us is something that is not getting out there to even the labor media, per se. Uh, I think Labor Notes got it, but I don't think most of, other, most of the other labor publications did, maybe in these times did as well. Um, but we need to get this story out so people understand what, the, what it is to organize um, in the South and what the challenges really are. And it's not so much anti-union strategies of, of companies, it's anti-union society that, that is, is in a factor to take into account that you don't think about outside as much. I mean, you do hear about it um, and you, you do hear anti-union campaigns, but majority of like where I'm from in Massachusetts, most people are pro-union, <laughs> you know, and it's right. kind of the society is relatively pro-union. Uh, it's not insanely negative. Uh, they'll say, oh, you know, they're not as good as they used to be and everything else, but it's nothing to the detriment that we're hearing from Tennessee. Um, and with the, the great history that Chattanooga has, uh, I hope we get to 95% representation in the labor force soon. But um, I, I guess that's a, a pipe dream at this moment. Uh, just getting VW, I think, will be s sufficient at this point. Um, but again, uh, well, you know, I, I think it's really important that, you know, we keep hearing organize the South, mm -hmm. right? But then people aren't putting their time or their resources, you know, or their energy there. And so I think it's, it's really important that people support the work that's taking place here, but also that they find ways to build relationships with the folks who are doing that work mm -hmm. and to lift up the stories and voices that are there, you know. So, again, I just want to really um, thank you for talking to me and, and, and for helping to uh, advance the cause of organizing the South. 
Definitely. And share us with the, if you can, the, the links, uh, if people can contribute to the, the event that you're going to tonight, if there is a link, otherwise I can put it into the show notes for people to click onto after the show. Yeah, that'd be great. I will definitely do that. Great. Well, thanks again, Chris. It's been great hearing from you and, uh, hope to have you on again soon. I thank you very much. Visit us at cyberunions.org. Follow us on Twitter and Identica at cyberunions or on Reddit slash r slash cyberunions. You can also email us feedback or grievance at cyberunions.org. Thank you for listening.